Um, Genesis chapter 20. And let's just one more time just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless His Word. Father, we, we know You've overheard and we know that You're here among us, Lord. And uh, we know that this, this time is so precious and this truth is so enriching. It's so real, Lord. And, and we just ask You, Father, that You would give us ears, give us a heart, give us understanding and, and help us, Lord. We pray that Your Spirit would speak, that we would clearly hear from You tonight. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And Abraham journeyed from there toward the south country, and he dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said unto him, Behold, you are but a dead man, for the woman which you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I, not thee, or I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. And he shall pray for thee, and you shall live. And if you restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, what sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness that thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come, say of me, he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and to all other. Thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children, for the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We catch up with Abraham after Genesis chapter 19 and the destruction of Sodom. 
And where we had last seen him, he was living in an area of the land that is called Hebron in the plains of Mamre. We see that God had been with Abraham while he was there. Hebron means communion, and Mamre means strength. And those are two words that define uh, their defining characteristics of Abraham's time while he was living in that region. God had uh, blessed him there. There was prosperity that had come to Abraham while in Hebron, in Mamre. There was safety there. He had an alliance with some of the uh, other leaders that were in that area, and they would help each other out. There was stability in Abram's life as we see him standing before the Lord. We see that God was speaking to him, meeting with him often while he was there dwelling in, uh, in Hebron. And he had more or less developed some roots there. There was a home, a place, and, and he was tucked in the land. He was in the middle of God's will while he was living in that area of Hebron. But after the destruction of Sodom that we saw in the last chapter, all of a sudden, as we read at the beginning of chapter 20, Abraham picks up, and that was some pickup. I mean, as you realize how many were with him, and he just leaves. He leaves Hebron, and he goes now into the southern part, into the area that will become known as Beersheba, and he begins to sojourn in this part of the land that is called Gerar, under the rule and direction of this man, Abimelech. And the great question that's before us as we see it is, why? What motivated, what moved Abraham to now leave the place of blessing and to go to a place that's very destabilizing for him and for his family? We don't read of any conflict that was going on that drove him out. There was no command or word from God that he was to up and leave the place where he was. There's no mention of a famine or anything that was causing him to have to go and seek better grounds for his pasture, for his farms, or for his lands. He just goes. And we don't exactly know why. There's no reason that's given to us. Perhaps he was discouraged after the destruction of Sodom and just considering the things that had happened with Lot and all of it. And, or maybe he was going to search for Lot after Lot had escaped from Sodom. Uh, he, he hadn't heard anything. What had happened? And maybe he wanted to just go and find out if Lot was okay. What we know for certain is that this is technically not disobedience. That there was nothing wherein he left the land. He's still within the boundaries of where God had told him he was to dwell. He's in the future land of Canaan. Uh, it's not disobedience in any way, but it definitely is destabilizing for Abraham and for his family. It causes problems, especially between him and, and Sarah. As I read it, I wonder if part of the reason, if not the sole reason, why Abram left Hebron to go down into Beersheba was an act of pure faith. The last thing that God had said to Abraham is that one year from now, your wife is going to bear a child as was promised to you at the beginning. You being 100, she being 90, it will be miraculous, but I will perform the word that I've spoken to you. And it could well be that as Abraham just considered the circumstances that were going on around him there in Hebron, and some of the alliances, perhaps some of the influences that he had there, perhaps he just realized that this thing that God has spoken is in fact going to happen. And maybe, although Hebron, Mamre, is a great place for me and for my business and for my situation, he could see through the eyes of faith that in the future this wouldn't be a very good place for Isaac. 
He might not have the strength or the fortitude or the discernment to be able to deal with some of the cultural things that were going on there. And that for the sake of a future generation, maybe it would be best for me to move on. And it's interesting to me that although Beersheba was somewhat of a destabilizing thing for Abram, not necessarily such a good thing for him, Beersheba was an incredible place for Isaac. He wasn't drawn in to the culture and to the ways of the Canaanites living down in Beersheba. And as Isaac, his son, will grow up, it will be in Beersheba that God will prosper him and bless him and establish his roots for his future and God's plan for him. And I find in it that there's a principle. There's something that you and I as parents can maybe learn from Abraham in this thing that he's doing. First of all, it's wisdom for us to understand that there are certain things that maybe for you and me are okay, or maybe for you and me are even good, but for our kids, maybe not. And for the sake of their spiritual well-being and their future, sometimes we have to say no to things that might be okay for us because of what it might mean or what it might cost them in the future. And to not be so consumed with, well, what I'm allowed to do, but to realize that what we do as parents and as adults has an impact on the next generation. I've told you the story before of how when Georgia and I were newlyweds, we were married for one year on our one-year anniversary. And we went out to dinner at a place in Rochester where we were living at the time. And as we were waiting in an exceptionally long line to get a table in this restaurant, we sat down in the... Um, bar area of this restaurant, and we ordered a, a coffee drink that had Kahlua in it, an alcoholic uh, beverage. And we were young, and we were, you know, league of legal age, and we didn't even have kids yet. We were just young, you know. And, and as we shared just that one drink together there, there was something that happened spiritually just between us and in the night, that the whole dynamic and demeanor of the night just changed. Everything just turned, the spirit of it. It went from rejoicing and excitement to just heavy and grievous, and we couldn't figure out why until we were talking about it later on. And we made a decision that night that, you know what, we don't need to have alcohol to be a part of our home or a part of our life. We could probably handle it. You know, we're Christians, we're mature, we don't have history of alcoholism in our family, and there's nothing unbiblical about us uh, in moderation doing that. There's nothing wrong with it. But we just made a decision that we didn't ever want our kids to ever see us doing that. That there can come no bad from leaving that out completely from being an influence and watching in their lives. And you know what? It never has. And it's a kind of a, a sweet thing, not a boastful thing. It's not prideful. It's not judgmental on what anyone else would do or the decisions that they would make. But it is just nice to look at, be able to look at our kids and say that you never saw that in our fridge. You never saw it in our behavior. And not because we can't handle it. It might be okay for us. But looking out for the eyes that are watching and to realize that the things that we do have an effect, an influence upon them. And thus Abram moves from Beersheba. Another thing to consider that there are times for us as parents that it is fitting for us to sacrifice what is best for us for the sake of what's best for them. Amen? If there's one thing that we have learned from the last 50 years in American society is that selfish parents produce exceedingly selfish kids. Right? 
I mean, when we think about how things have changed between 1950 and the present day and the generation of our parents who were brought up by those that went through the Great Depression, you know, and then to see the prosperity of, you know, the 50s and the 60s and what that produced and then how a generation that had no need and that lived primarily for self and what they produced in their offspring and how that exponentially multiplies. There's times that we need to sacrifice and be selfless as parents for the sake of the good that it will do for our kids. We see in Abraham leaving a place of stability, maybe for the sake of his son. Well, once Abram leaves Hebron and goes to Beersheba, a familiar situation comes and old habits and ways set in. He says to the servants of Abimelech, the king of Gerar, that Sarah is his sister. And you might have thought, didn't we already study this chapter? Because Abraham did this when he went down to Egypt back in chapter 12. He lied and he said that Sarah was his sister. And it caused huge problems for Abraham and for his future. And now we see Abraham doing the same thing again these 25 years later when he comes into an unfamiliar territory and he's put face to face with this fear of losing his life for the sake of his beautiful wife. What an amazing woman Sarah must have been. To at 90 years old, been a fear that she's going to be stolen and then actually be taken into the harem of a king twice, once at age 65, now again at the age of 90. What an amazing thing. But here's what we learn from it. Understand this, church, Christian, human, is that the flesh is always the flesh. The Bible says that we are flesh, but when we're born again, we're given the Spirit of God, a completely new nature. And the Bible says that there's a war going on inside of us over who's going to have control of our mind. Is God the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us because of Jesus Christ, is he going to have control over our mind? Or is our old nature, the fleshy nature, the sinful nature going to have control of our mind? And that determination is our choice to make day by day. There's a cross and a throne in every heart. And there are also two people, and there's this game of musical chairs that goes on continually. And if you and I are on the throne, then that leaves Jesus to be upon the cross. But if Jesus inside of us is on the throne, then it means that self must be where? On the cross. Everyone gets a chair. And the choice is mine. The choice is yours. And we see that the flesh is always the flesh. When the flesh rules over our mind and over our life, we are always going to be what we are in the flesh. And that is nothing, right? You would think that 25 years into a relationship with God, Abraham would have this down. That he wouldn't be having this struggle anymore. But the flesh is always the flesh. And the flesh picks up where it left off when it gets its chance to sit upon the throne, doesn't it? I don't know if you've experienced that or if it's just unspiritual me. But the flesh is the flesh. Well, Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem, and God now comes to Abimelech and has this one-on-one -on -one private meeting to set things right. Amazing. Abram has put redemption at risk by seeing Sarah released into this man's grip. And now God comes to intervene yet again. So God comes and he says, you're a dead man. Now, those are harsh words, right? That'll get the attention of just about anyone. If God comes to you and says, hey, you're a dead man. I mean, you've got my attention, right? And then he tells him why. He says that the woman that you've taken is another man's wife. But then Abimelech is able to defend himself before God, and he says, hey, listen, 
Will you also destroy a righteous nation? I want you to mark that word also that you see there in the text. Because what it tells us is that everyone in that area was well familiar with what had just taken place in Sodom. Will you also destroy a righteous nation? I know that you destroyed Sodom, but hey, we've gotten our act together since we saw that furnace of smoke ascending into the heavens. And then Abimelech is able to say to God, and these are profound words, he says, in the innocency of my, or I'm sorry, the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. I did not know that this was another man's wife. In other words, I have done my due diligence to find out who this woman is. And had I known that she was a man's wife, I would not have taken her into my harem. But I checked with him and with her, and both of them concurred that they were not married, and I have not touched her. And then God responds and replies to Abimelech's defense by saying, yes, indeed, I know that you've done this with the integrity of your hands or heart and in the innocency of your hands. Now listen, therefore, God says, I did not allow you to touch her, but now... What you do next is of extreme importance. Restore unto the man his wife, and if you don't, then not only are you a dead man, but your whole household is, and you're done as a nation. God is deadly serious about seeing this set right. Now, in this, there's a lesson, and there's a comfort. The lesson is this, is that when you and I operate with integrity of heart and innocency of hands, then we have the hope and the promise that God is going to preserve us and keep us from falling into evil and from sinning in a way that will ultimately head to our destruction. When we, in our heart, in the secret place where no one else can see, have a desire to do what's right, and we don't hide our sins from ourselves, from others, or from God, but when we desire to do what's right, God keeps us from the many errors that befall us anyway. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I think it's only a matter of time before I screw up to a point where God has to just shelf me or kill me or judge me or do something to me. I mean, it just seems like as life gets more complicated and as the world spins more and more out of control, it's almost impossible that somewhere an error or a mistake isn't going to be made. Or that Satan isn't going to lay a trap that I'm not going to see coming. And in the stupor of everyday life, I'm just going to do something stupid. I'm going to say something stupid or be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm just going to be done. But it gives me comfort to know that if my, the, the desire of my heart is, Lord, I want to do what's right. And as much as I can, I want my hands to be innocent. I'm not going to secretly put my hands to something that's against your word or against your will then the Bible teaches that God is able to preserve me and keep me from being shipwrecked or subverted in his cause and purpose. The book of Jude, verse 24, says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to preserve you blameless before the throne of his glory with exceeding joy. God is able to preserve us and keep us, and he will and he does. But what he calls us to do is to walk in integrity of our hearts, in innocency of our hands, and if we find ourselves in a position where we have crossed a line, maybe unknowingly, or there's the potential of us doing something, maybe tomorrow, that will be damning or detrimental, then we're to restore and turn from that at once, immediately. And God is faithful to reveal those things to us. 
And so Abimelech is spared from going to Sarah because of this thing and because he obeyed what God said uh, in, in all of this. And so now Abimelech comes to Abraham in all of this and he asks him the question. He says, what in the world did you see? In other words, what was your point of view when you came into my land and you thought that you had to lie in order to preserve yourself or whatever it was? Why did you do this? What did you see? Why did you judge us, in other words? And what I love about Abraham is he's brought this reproof is that he comes completely clean with Abimelech. He gives him three reasons why. He says, first of all, because I thought that they would slay me here because of the beauty of my wife and they would take her into him. I was afraid. Abraham confesses. There was fear in me that I would lose my life. Now, amazingly, that's an irrational fear, isn't it? I mean, this man is Abraham, the man of faith. The man that believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The man who had God's promises and God's assurance that he was going to have a son and that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. And if he had stood upon the promises of God, he would realize that this is a completely irrational fear that he has. And again, I'm comforted by the fact that even Abraham, a giant of the faith, had the tendency sometimes to forget the promises of God even 25 years into a relationship with God. Whenever we forget the promises that God has given to us, when we forget the promise that he keeps us as the apple of his eye, that we're in the everlasting arms that don't fall and fail, that he preserves and keeps us, that he who started a work is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, that no weapon that's been formed against us will prosper, when we forget those promises, irrational fears begin to set in. And that's when we begin to make huge mistakes and errors. But Abraham confesses. He says, I was afraid that you would kill me and take my wife. Second of all, he says, well, by the way, I mean, yeah, yeah, she is my wife, but she is kind of also my sister. You know, she's the daughter of my father, but she's not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife, you know? And so she's my half-sister, and so technically... I didn't lie. It was just kind of like a half-truth sort of a thing. Listen, a half-truth is a full lie. And the reason is because a half-truth is given with the intent to deceive. The heart behind a half-truth is to be deceptive, and thus it is a lie. Don't justify half-truths because they're lies. But he confesses. He says, hey, I know this was a half-truth. And then thirdly, Abram says, listen, this has been our way, our custom, our agreement from the beginning. That I said to her that this will be the kindness that you'll show unto me every time we come into a place, that you'll tell the people that you're my sister and that I am your brother. And he says, this has just been my way. It's a weakness that I have. Now, I honor Abraham here for his humility. He doesn't say, hey, what did God tell you about me? Didn't he say that I'm a prophet? You have no business reproving me in this way. In fact, right now, your health is at the mercy of my prayer. So I would back down if I were you, Abimelech. I'll tell you right now, if Abraham was a resident of Dutchess County, that's probably how he would have handled it. I mean, really, we're a prideful people, aren't we? But Abraham knows that he's wrong. See, you just, pr you just said no, and it proves the point. <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Abraham doesn't reprove Abimelech for being called out. He owns it. He confesses it. 
And it's an honorable mark of humility in that he does so. It's an amazing thing to be humble. And you know what's amazing? People don't want to humble themselves. We're afraid to humble ourselves because we think it's going to cost us something in the future. Well, if I confess or admit that I was wrong in a situation or that I did wrong, then that person owns me. That person has some upper hand. It'll always be there between us that, you know, that I did this and they called me out and I was caught. And every time I see them, listen, we're going to see in the next chapter that that's not true at all. Abraham is exalted far above Abimelech, even in the eyes of Abimelech. He knows that Abraham is something. And the fact that Abraham humbles himself in this, it isn't to his shame for the future, it's to his honor for the future. And the Bible tells us that with God, before honor is humility. Abraham has a real relationship with God. He truly is a man of God and he truly loves God. And listen, because of that, Abraham can afford to be humble. And that which is real before God can afford to be humble. And only that which is humble will be exalted by God. And thus Abraham is an honorable man here and that he humbled himself before Abimelech in this thing. He owns it and he gets into the light. And so thus the conclusion of the matter, Abimelech brings gifts to Abraham he reproves him, and he reproves Sarah. And I love the reproof that he gives. Notice it in verse 16. He said to Sarah, he says, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee. In other words, he's saying, I gave him a thousand pieces of silver. Would you please go to Kohl's and buy a veil and cover the beauty of your face so that this doesn't happen again? He is to thee a covering of the eyes. To, 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 um, to you and to all that are with you, and thus she was reproved. And so Abraham now prays to God. Abimelech is healed and his wife and his servants, and they began to bear children again in this whole thing. Uh, and there's prayer and there's healing. Well, we move on to chapter 21, which is all of this is barreling towards. It says in verse 1, it says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. Remarkable. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should give children suck, that I would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. I love how the chapter begins, the way that God comes in by his Spirit, and he just says there simply, it says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah, as he had spoken. God wants it known by us, highlighted and underlined, repeated, that when God says something is going to come to pass, that something will indeed come to pass. Though it might take 25 years for the promise of God to be fulfilled, though it might take way longer than we want or hope or would expect or think, if God says it, it will happen. 
And that's true concerning every generic thing that God has laid out and said in his word prophetically or promise-wise. And it's also true concerning the things that God speaks to us concerning his purpose and plan for us and for our future and for our family. If God gives a promise, he is able to keep his word and none of his words fall to the ground. As he had said, as he had spoken. And then notice that for the third time in this whole ordeal, it says, at the set time. And that's always the issue. It's never that God isn't able. And it's never that we have to come up with the right combination of words to pray in order to release the blessing. That's never the issue. The issue is always purpose and time. And at the set time, the promise will come. Nothing can stop it. Then we're told that the name given to him is Isaac, that circumcision happens the eighth day, Abraham walking in perfect obedience to what God had said. God had told him that was the name, and God had told him, commanded him, that he's to be circumcised the eighth day. And thus we see Abraham receiving the promise and still walking in obedience. Do you know what I see all too often? It saddens me. I see the tendency in myself as well. Is that sometimes a person will wait on God for a promise for so long, And then as soon as the promise comes, the prayer is answered, the thing is fulfilled, they turn their back on God and they get what they came for and now they've got nothing for God. No desire to obey or to keep walking with Him or to fulfill His purpose and even giving the promise to them. Sometimes you'll see a a, a couple come and they're struggling with infertility, much like Abraham and Sarah. And they'll wrestle and struggle and and they'll, they'll fight and they'll try and they'll pray and they'll wait and they'll cry and they'll weep. And then God comes through and there's conception and there's celebration and a birth. And then a year or two goes by and it's forgotten what God did for them. And you see that, you know, they're no longer content and they begin to turn their back on God. And now, you know, there's an affair or there's an issue or there's something. You say, what happened? They obtained the promise, but you realize that that's all that they were in it for in the beginning was what they could get from God and not what they could know of God in the process. Not so with Abram. He carefully walks in obedience even after the blessing comes. Notice also concerning Sarah, it says that she laughed within herself and said, God has made me to laugh so that all will laugh with me. And then she said, who would have said unto Abram that Sarah would give children suck? She takes time to reflect on the journey And to give thanks and express gratitude for what God had done. Can I tell you, church, it's so important. It's so necessary and vital for you and I to often reflect on the things that God has done. In American mentality, and and again, this is all of us, we do this. We're in this conquering, conquer, obtain type of mode all the time. And that's okay. We want to move forward. We want to progress. We want to grow. That's good. God didn't condemn greatness, and he wants us to keep moving. He tells us to occupy. And so we obtain, we achieve, and then we immediately kind of put it in our bag of belongings, and we look towards the next thing. And oftentimes we forget to give thanks and to reflect on how far God has brought us and all that he's done for us. But when we do, when we say, Lord, thank you for what you did in this. Thank you for the way that you orchestrated it. When I look over the last 10 years and I see how you led me through and what you've done, and I couldn't have done this for myself. There's something supernatural that happens when we do that, that our eyes are opened to see the hand of the Lord and the way that he's worked in our lives. 
And our enjoyment is unlocked to enjoy the blessings that he's given. But if we never stop to reflect and give thanks, then we miss out on so much of God and what he's done and how he's moving us and bringing us along. And we're more tempted and vulnerable to be lifted up in pride. Sarah gives thanks. And then finally, it tells us that there was a great celebration that was made on the day that Isaac was weaned. What we see in the weaning of Isaac here, not just a fact of his physical development and physical maturity, but in the Bible, the weaning of a child speaks of something that's spiritual and deeper than just the physical eating of more solid foods. There's a spiritual component to it. And what we see in the weaning of Isaac is that as parents... Sarah and Abraham not only provided a favorable environment by moving into this southern region, but they were also per providing for Isaac proper spiritual development in his growth. Let me read to you a verse from the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 9. It says, Whom shall he teach knowledge... And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? This is speaking of God and concerning you and I. He says, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. As there is a weaning that happens physically in a child's life, there is also a weaning that happens spiritually as we grow in the Lord. There is the milk of the word. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, if you uh, look up on the screen, you'll see it come up there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse, I think it's right around verse 5. It says, I want to find it. I forgot to put a tab in here. Happens once a week, right? It says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that you're dull of hearing. For when for the time that you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the things which be the first principles of the truths of God. And you are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to those that are of full age or mature, even those who by reason of use, using the word, have their senses, spiritual senses, exercised in order to discern both good and evil. In other words, just as there's a physical weaning coming off of the milk and learning to digest solid foods, Spiritually, there's a point of growth that's supposed to happen in our lives where no longer are we simply receiving spiritual milk, the very simple things concerning the faith, the blood and the cross, forgiveness of sins. Of course, those things are the foundational principles, and we never leave them completely. But we're to go on from there, and there's more for us to know of God. His word is full and he desires for us to know him through his word in the deep things as well as in the small and in the shallow. Milk is pre-digested food. Milk from the breast is food that's been eaten by someone who's mature, processed, and then prepared for a smaller person's digestive system and then passed through them being previously digested. That's what this is right now. This week I 
ate this food, Genesis 20 and 21. I processed it. I digested it. I stamped it out. I withdrew and extracted the nutrients from it. I let it work its way through my spirit and through my life. And then I arranged it in such a way that I could hopefully clearly communicate it to you so that you could hear it and receive the truths of it and then assimilate the blessing of it in and of yourselves. But it's milk. It's passed through me and it's going to you. But there's a weaning that's to happen in the lives of God's people where it isn't just milk and pablum that we're receiving from the radio or a tape or a teaching that we hear in church. But where we can go to God in the word and have his spirit divided and open it and we can process and digest these things. Who shall he teach doctrine? Whose senses will be discerning of good and evil? Them that are drawn from the breast. Those who use the meat of the word and can discern it. Would to God that we would be weaned. And it's cause for celebration any day that a child of the faith is weaned from the milk and they learn to receive from God themselves. We were sitting at our table the other night and we're just finishing up the Easter story. Yes, I go slow at home too. You know, take longer than I'm supposed to. And we were discussing Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he was disguised And the disciples didn't know it was him. And he was talking to them how all the Old Testament scriptures speak of himself. And I was telling the kids there at the table of all the things in the Old Testament where Jesus is shown, where you would never know it unless you know it. And I'm taking them through one by one, you know, some passages in Genesis and other passages in in Exodus and Leviticus and the Psalms and in the prophets and just quickly going through different things. And an amazing thing happened as I was talking to them about the episode where Joshua was fighting the Amalekites in the valley and Moses was on the hill and Aaron and her were holding up his arms. And I was illustrating to them how it was a picture of Christ, three men on a hill, and the man in the middle had his arms spread out and that's how they got victory in the battle down in the valley. You know? But I didn't tell them what it was. I, I just was explaining the story that there was three men up on the hill and, and they were holding up Moses' arms. And I said to them, I said, do you guys know what that means? And Riley, who's my six-year-old, he lit up and I watched this amazing thing happen as he had this like interaction with God at my table. And he went, and I saw him light right up and he goes, it's like Jesus. And he got it. And I was like, yes, you know, and I was so blessed because I know it wasn't me. It was he, God did something there. It's the process of weaning. There was a great celebration on the day that Isaac was weaned. He was drawn from the breast. And would to God that you and I, before God, would be weaned from the milk, that we would know how to extract, to be fed of him. Well, it says that Sarah now, verse 9, the tone changes. Things move forward. It says that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Now, without rehashing the story, you guys know Hagar, the Egyptian bond slave, the product of Abraham's flesh, the plan of Sarah and Abraham to try to help God along, Ishmael born of Hagar. It says, wherefore now she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. 
And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael, will I make a nation because he is thy seed. And so Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water And he gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and he sent her away. And she departed, and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, an amazing thing in all of this is that God is behind it. We know that Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael, that it is an illustration of the fleshly attempts of man to try to help God along. Ishmael becomes a perpetual picture of the flesh, of our effort, our self-efforts. And what we see in this is that God is behind this casting out. First of all, for Isaac's sake. Because Ishmael was mocking Isaac and persecuting him that was born according to promise and him that would be the heir. For Isaac's sake, God says, Ishmael's got to go. But it's not just for Isaac's sake, it's also for our sake. Because there's a principle that's illustrated in all of this. The Apostle Paul takes this story, this little passage right here in the New Testament book of Galatians, and he unpacks it for us. Notice what Paul says to the Galatian church. Now, the problem in Galatia is that they were being legalistic. They were trying to please God through the energy of keeping the law of God. Well, if we do this, then God is bound to bless us. And they were forsaking grace in the cross, and they were trying to save themselves through their own works and their own efforts. And Paul wrote Galatians to correct that and say, no, it's not the law that saves you. It's grace. It's faith. It's Christ. It's the blood. And then he teaches them concerning this with this illustration in Galatians 4.19. He says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, Ishmael, and the other by a free woman, Isaac. But he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born after the flesh, Abraham's effort, Abraham's attempt to fulfill the will of God. But he of the free woman, Isaac, was by promise. Which things, Paul says, are an allegory. They're a story intended to teach. For which, for these, are, listen, the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, the law, which genders or whose offspring is bondage, which is Hagar. So in other words, Hagar represents Mount Sinai, and the only thing that Mount Sinai can give birth to is bondage under the law. So Ishmael becomes a picture, a type, an allegory of bondage under the law. But, verse 25, he says, This Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Hagar, Mount Sinai, still being in bondage. 
But Jerusalem, verse 26, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The Sarah is a picture, an allegory, a type of Jerusalem. Isaac being a type of those that are free from the law. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, you that labor not. For the desolate, speaking of Sarah, has more children than she which has a husband. Now, application, verse 28. We, brethren, that's us, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then... He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom or the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You say, wow, that's a lot to process. Here's the point in the bottom line. Is that on any given day, at any given time, you and I have a choice of how we're going to relate to God. We can either relate to God according to the law of God. Well, if I do this, then God is bound to do that. Or if I behave and live this way, then God will bless me and favor me. That's the law. Or we can relate to God and live before God according to the promise of grace, freedom from the law, the new covenant that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace through faith, not by works of my own righteousness that I've done. The purpose of the law is to reveal that we're sinners and separated from God. That's why he gave the law. Paul said, I wouldn't have known what lust was unless the law said, don't covet. The law revealed to me that I had a problem, that I'm a sinner. But the law can't fix my sin. It can only reveal it. And anytime I try in the energy of my flesh to keep the law, I fall flat on my face. Right now, I don't want any of you to think about a green monkey. Don't think about a green monkey. I'm telling you, train your mind and discipline yourself and do not put a picture in your mind of a green monkey. Now, once I say that, you're bound to fail, right? And that's what the law does. The law makes nothing perfect. And thus, when I'm trying to live according to the law, I'm constantly in bondage because I can't keep the law and thus I can never obtain the blessing of God. But the Bible says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. That's what Jesus did. He removed us from the curse of the law. He nailed it to his cross, Colossians chapter 2. And now we're free according to the promise of grace through faith in the blood of Christ. And here's the amazing thing that happens. Not lawless sinfulness, but power for change. Why? Because it's according to promise. Philippians 1.6, he that began a good work in you and me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he suffered so that we could be born into his family and then conformed into the image of Christ. That doesn't happen by the keeping of the law. It happens by the power of the spirit working in my life. 
Just like it was impossible for Sarah and Abraham to produce offspring being post-menopausal, it was a promise and a miracle, so also the change that happens in our lives is according to promise and grace. God does the work inside of us. He starts on the inside and it works its way out. It's not lawlessness. It's transformation. It's not reformation. Reformation changes behavior and image. Transformation changes the heart and behavior from the inside. It takes more time, but it's more real and it happens. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And thus Abraham does. Well, amazingly, I don't know if the question struck you, but oh my goodness. Here's this man that's overloaded with riches. And he gives her a loaf of bread and a bottle of water and says, have a nice life. You say, oh my goodness, what in the world is that all about? Notice what it goes on to say. Verse 15. It says, and the water was spent in the bottle and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot, probably about a football field away. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and she filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Why did Abraham give so little to Ishmael and to Hagar as he sent them away, though he himself was a great rich man? You know what the answer is? The answer is because he loved them. You say, what? Love gives. Why would love provide so little to these two as he sends them on his way? Do you see the outcome of what happened in all of this? Do you realize and see that so quickly were they sent away, now Hagar quickly soon realizes that her resources are dried up. That she doesn't have the means necessary in order to take care of this son that God has laid before her. She realizes she's at the end of her ability and that the need Ishmael has is greater than the resources she can provide. And so what does she do? She does two things. Three, actually. She cast him under a bush. She withdrew a certain way. And then she lifted up her voice with weeping and prayer unto God for her son. The Bible says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. She cast him under a shrub. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God, and the peace of God will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. She cast him out. She prayed for him. And it says that then the Lord heard the voice of the lad. What does that mean? It means that not only did she cry out, but in his need now, Ishmael cries out. Now realize, he's not a little boy. He's at least 15 years old at this time, probably near 20 or 25 because Isaac's been weaned. So he's not just this little child. And so this post-teen, 20-something, millennial boy 
cries out to God. It says that God heard the voice of the lad. And the outcome of the whole thing is that now Hagar is able to minister to him because God opens her eyes and shows her how to do it. And it says that God was with the lad and blessed him. Do you see what happened here? Through their poverty, they realized they didn't have adequate to do what they needed to do to be who they needed to be. And it was in that that salvation happened, that God showed up and Ishmael was met. Blessed day it is, mom and dad, when we realize that we can't meet the needs, the great needs that our kids have. And blessed be the day that we separate ourselves from them, at least spiritually enough, that we can weep before God and pray for them and put them in a place where they themselves will call out unto God. And then God, in reaching them, will teach us how to speak into their lives and there'll be unification, salvation, and blessing. It's an amazing thing that happens here. But realize, it never would have happened if Abraham had said, Oh, you're going? Okay, here. Take ten camels laden down with gold and spices. And take enough food for you to get wherever you want and set yourselves up pretty when you get there. Listen, if he had done that, it never would have happened. Sometimes we do our kids a disservice by just doing everything for them and giving everything to them. Because in it, they never recognize their need. Sometimes here at the church, people come to us and they say, this is the need. And most times we meet those needs. We do a lot here and help a lot of people. But there are times that people come and they say, this is our need. And we'll pray and God will say, no. They need to learn to lean upon me and watch my provision and see my salvation. And if you help them in this instance, you're actually going to hinder the thing that I'm doing in their life. God reaches Hagar again and reaches Ishmael now through this whole episode and the whole thing. Well, the chapter closes quickly. And really, it is quickly. It says that it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol the chief captain of the host spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto you, you shall do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. This is a smart king. Any king that sees the blessing of God on the people of God and gets behind that blessing and wants to relate to it in a good context, that's a wise king. And would to be that the kings of the earth in our day would recognize that the blessing of God is still upon the descendants of Abraham and that God still blesses those that bless Israel and curses those that curse Israel. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I knew not that this was done, neither did you tell me, neither had I heard of it until today. But Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shall you take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they both swear, or they swear both of them. 
Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, El Olam, a new uh, revelation of God's name in the Bible, the first mention of God in this way. And can I tell you, personally, this is one of my favorite names that God has revealed in the scriptures concerning himself, the everlasting God. The older I get, I think the older that we get, the more we realize how fleeting everything in this life is. And, and, and it depresses us sometimes as we watch things fade and as we realize that nothing lasts. But there is something that lasts. And it's something that God is, or I'm sorry, Abraham is realizing at this point in his life as he has seen so much. He's seen the blessing of God come into his life and he's realized that, yeah, this is all great, the sheep, the gold, the success. But it's fleeting. It doesn't satisfy. It's never quite enough. It's not what I was made for. He dwelt in a good place, in a good situation. And He's seen that come and go. He's seen the promises and the deliverances. He's seen Isaac now come and he's weaned. He's seen 